Want to stand with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Get her iconic Descent Collar in the form of a pin, necklace, or earrings. Descent Pins donates 50% of profits to causes you love, like the Bronx Freedom Fund and Planned Parenthood. Take 20% off today with code HARPERS at DescentPins.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Memory, of both actual events and childhood imaginings, plays a pivotal role in Pierre Jarawan's The Storyteller, which has been translated into English for the first time. The book follows Samir, a boy born in Germany to parents who fled the Lebanese Civil War. After an uncomfortable secret about his father is revealed, Samir's father disappears. Years later, Samir travels to Lebanon for the first time in the hopes of finding him. On April 10th at Book Culture, Jarawan joined me for a reading and interview. Sadly, I cannot offer you the baklava and German wine we enjoyed after the event, but here's the audio. The storyteller that gives the, the name to the book uh, is Samir's father, and um, they both have a very close relationship. And... Uh, yeah, I'll just show you how close that relationship is by reading um, a short passage uh, from the book and then uh, a second short passage afterwards. As a boy, I felt an insatiable longing to see Lebanon. It was like the enormous curiosity inspired by a legendary beauty no one has ever seen. The passion and fervor in the way Father spoke about his native land spread to me like a fever. The Lebanon I grew up with was an idea, the idea of the most beautiful country in the world, its rocky coastline dotted with ancient and mysterious cities whose colorful harbors opened out to the sea. Behind them, countless winding mountain roads flanked by river valleys whose fertile banks provided the perfect soil for world-famous wine. We stood on a lake shore, breathing the same air and sharing the same longing. In my opinion, after love for another, there is no stronger bond between two people than a shared longing. But I also remember how father's arm felt heavier and heavier on my shoulders. His breathing became deeper and deeper, his gaze more and more trance-like, as if he were no longer looking at the ships, but at some point in the distance. The reason I remember it so clearly is that it was one of the last days we spent together. Although my father wasn't particularly tall, to me he seemed like a lighthouse, someone who oriented you, someone you could see from a distance. I'm certain many others saw him that way too. At the market he would greet the traders, skillfully ask how they were doing and get such an easy conversation going that they barely noticed when he got down to business. He loved haggling. He was a true Arab in that regard. He was always trying his luck and not just when he took me to the market. Even in the supermarket, in the aisle where the porridge, oats and ready meals were, he might take a bemused shop assistant aside and, with a conspirational expression on his face, whisper, the cheese, can you do any better on the price? And he sang. He was a real Arab in that way too. He would sing on the street, unperturbed by the looks people gave him. 
Germans don't burst into song on the street, he once said to me as we strolled back from the market hand in hand, laden with bags of fresh fruit and vegetables. It was a day made for singing, a day like a summer's tune. Sunshine, awnings, children with chocolate ice cream smeared around the mouses. Why not? I asked. Because they care too much about what other people think. They're worried people think they're crazy if they start singing on the street. Maybe you're the one who's crazy. Maybe I am. Or maybe deep down they'd like to sing in public too, but they don't dare because they think you need a permit. He liked to joke about how you need a permit for everything in Germany. And then he sang. Pahibbak ya Lubnan, ya watani pahibbak, bishmalak. I love you, Lebanon, my country, I love you, your north, your south, your plains, I love you. I squeezed his hand tight. I knew the song, I knew the singer. I had heard her voice many times before. Fairuz, that was her name. I had seen her on TV once, standing like a sphinx in front of the temple ruins of Baalbek, as she sang the same song. Mother loved her songs too. Everyone loved Fairuz. She was the harp of the Orient, the nightingale of the Middle East, singing about her love of her homeland. Someone, I think it was Hakim, once called her the mother of all Lebanese people. This is how we walked home, with father singing. I joined in at some point. We weren't bothered by the funny looks we got, in fact, the more people crossed our path, the louder we sang, and we didn't care if we barely hit a note. Holding hands, our shopping bags rustling in the wind, we sang in Arabic because we wouldn't have been able to express in German how we felt right then. I'm just going to skip a few pages, like in the book, a few weeks will pass by, and um, then the father will show pictures to the children in the family's living room. He will show them pictures of Lebanon as the children have never seen the country before. And um, when he shows them the pictures, something strange happens. A family secret is suddenly revealed unexpectedly. It's, uh, it's more of a mistake, but um, shortly after the scene you're going to, read, uh, to hear now, the father will disappear. Whenever father got a chance to talk about Lebanon... He was in his element. We saw photos of the sea, of Beirut and its tall buildings, of the pigeon rocks standing just off the coast like the city sentinels. He showed us a photo of the six remaining columns of the Temple of Jupiter at Baalbek. It was after dark, but they were illuminated and very impressive. When he showed us a photo of a port, he said, See that? That's Byblos where our ancestors, the Phoenicians, invented the alphabet. Not many people know that. They all say, look at the Egyptians and the amazing pyramids they built, such a highly developed culture. But let me tell you, if we'd followed the Egyptians' example, we'd still be reading picture books today. At times he went into full lecture mode. Lebanon is the only Arab country with no desert, he informed us, as he showed a slide of Lake Karaun in the Beka Valley, there's so much fertile land there and so many vineyards. Especially in Zahle, cried Yasmin, her eyes sparkling. Exactly, grandfather with pride. 
Then he reached for the next slide, the one that changed his behavior. Looking back, I think he just picked up the wrong slide in his excitement, because he wasn't watching what he was doing. My guess is he meant to pick the one next to it. The slide he actually showed us had been moved to the back of the bunch on purpose. He had filtered it out so that it wouldn't end up in the projector, so that we wouldn't get to see it. My mother glanced at the photo, looked away, then back again suddenly as if she had to convince herself it was really there. At the right-hand edge of the image stood my father, beside a good-looking young man with thick black hair, dark brown eyes and an engaging smile. They were posing beneath a chandelier in a large foyer, a white-carpeted staircase with a gilt banister behind them. The man beside father was wearing a uniform and had a gun tucked into his belt. There was a cedar stitched onto the left breast of his shirt, a cedar with a red circle round it. Next I studied father. He was very young and seemed almost shy. The look in his eyes, today I'd describe it as dreamy, didn't quite match the rest of the scene. Father was smiling a dreamy smile and saluting. He was wearing the same uniform as the other men and he too had a gun tucked into his belt. Father stared at the picture as if he didn't recognize himself. There he was on our living room wall, large as life, standing beside a man who looked as if his uniform was a second skin, as if he'd been wearing it his whole life. I can only speculate now what thoughts went through Father's mind in that moment, what feelings the slide must have triggered, what memories, what pain, even. We all stared at the picture. Nobody said a word for what seemed like an eternity. Then my sister began to squirm and cry on my lap. Mother snapped out of her stunned silence and took the wriggling bundle from me. She left the room, rocking the baby in her arms. Hakim signaled to Yasmin that they'd better go. She gave me an uncertain look, slid off the couch, took his hand and they left. Father turned off the projector and slid out of the room with his head bowed. I stayed behind. A second earlier I'd wanted to ask him the story behind the picture. Now I'd decided not to. Could I possibly have guessed how much that moment would change our lives? How the seeds of disintegration became slowly and imperceptibly embedded in our family from then on, like a malignant growth discovered too late? It's only a photo. That's what I thought back then. A picture of my father with a gun. How was I to know I'd be haunted by that photo forever? Thank you. Thank you for that. It's a great part to read. Thank you. Um, you have a background as a slam poet in Germany. And those works are not available in, in English translation. So can you tell us, were your poems sort of dealing with similar themes? And how did the experience of, you know, writing poetry for performance influence your novel writing? Mm -hmm. um, the theme, when I started doing that, the themes were more about my my love for language, maybe, and and about writing, the, the, the act of writing. And 
this was the topic that dominated most of my of the texts I wrote for for Slam. Um, so, of course, they were about me somehow because if you're standing on a stage and you're writing for listeners, it's it's pretty hard not to like to to tell a story with an eye narrator that uh, that it's that's not you. The people will not make that distinction. So they um, so. I decided just to write about myself and try to be authentic on stage and um, yeah, that worked. And uh, after, I, I mean, I did that for more than 10 years. So um, I think it helped me writing the novel in in two ways that uh, uh, maybe contradict each other <laughs> because uh, in the first place, I think it helped me uh, learning how how you can write uh, in an entertaining way. So how do you entertain people with your writing and how do you uh, make people want to know more? And that's, if you write 450 pages, it, you better write it in the way that people <laughs> want to finish the book. Uh, so I think that helped me uh, uh, somehow, the, this experience on, on stage. Then again, writing for stage is very limiting. So uh, you have only five minutes uh, uh, you have to you have to have punchlines and all this stuff and uh, and after 10 years I just I just had the feeling that I could do something I hadn't done before uh, so I needed something else so um, writing a novel was like I don't, like entering this new space where writing the act of writing was still the same or familiar but the possibilities were like a whole new world uh, I could just invent a whole world i could just describe that living room and it could describe person that's something you just cannot do when you write for listeners uh you will lose them with too, with too many descriptions and uh, everything everything i read for example i draw from that experience too because what i read is always a modified version uh, for being read so it's not exactly if the, the same scene i just read it's much longer in in the novel it's full of descriptions and so on but it makes no sense reading it out loud because you will just get lost in the descriptions and uh, yeah that's why I, th I think that helps me help me in the relationship between children of immigrants and their parents home country where the children have sort of this imagined idea of what that place is like versus the actual country and encountering that has that been a common that's that's been a common theme in American literature but is it does that tradition sort of exist in German literature um, and and if so, did you draw any inspiration from those books? I think that 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 there is no real tradition uh, of of books in Germany with this topic. That is happening now. I think we're we're seeing this now with so many young novelists now uh, writing, being the first generation that writes about transcontinental migration. Mm -hmm. So we had topics uh, like migration in the novels but this was mostly you know, from former Soviet Union to Germany or from, from Poland, things like this, Italy so inner-European migration so now the, this is the first generation that writes about transcontinental migration and these books open up like words like Afghanistan, Iraq Lebanon in this case uh, Iran um, so this is basically a second generation of immigrants um, some of them born in Germany or some were very small when they came to Germany now writing about their experiences, like like you said, you know, imagining their home country in one way and and experiencing it in a different way. And of course, transcontinental migration has been a much larger topic for a much longer time in the U.S. So that's 
that's I think that's very normal that this has been a topic much longer in literature here. Have you read those great novels of you know transcontinental transcontinental migration in English, or are you familiar? Or are you interested in sort of connecting to that tradition in any way? There's no novel really that pops pops out now when when I when you ask that question. Um, I mean, I don't like really when I write. I don't like to to read uh, something that's similar to to what I'm writing mm-hmm. because it's just, yeah, it would, uh, yeah, it would just be too confusing, and I would uh, maybe I would find this better, and I want <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> give up, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or I get jealous. <laughs> so, so I try to protect myself from <laughs> from that. No, but uh, I take recommendations. So. That's a smart way to live. Good. <laughs> um, very sensible. Um, when you were sort of touching on this in your in what you just said, but you know the the book isn't necessarily autobiographical, but there are definitely things that are clearly personal to you in there. Um, so, how did you growing up navigate your heritage, and do you relate to it differently now, given let's say given current political events? <laughs> do you sort of envision it differently now? Yeah, I think this is this is what what's autobiographical in the novels uh, that Samir makes the same experience that I did, like not the same same. Everything that that happens to him and to the family is fiction. Everything that keeps the, the story moving is fiction. But um, when he's small, he imagines Lebanon as paradise on earth. He thinks it's the most beautiful country because that's what his father tells him. Uh, and what his na- the neighbors tell him, and he lives in like in a, in a community where everybody speaks Arabic, everybody's watching Arabic TV, and this is makes him feel like he think that home is Lebanon, not not Germany. This is maybe just temporarily here, and um, this wasn't the, like the case for me. I mean, but I knew people like in my environment, friends, and uh, from from Lebanon that that grew up in environment like this. I was kind of privileged because my mother is German so I think I got yeah I always had the feeling that I got the the best from both worlds so uh, uh, and I never had this conflict uh, it was never a conflict to me it was something I was proud of so in school I was like uh, when we had to give presentations I was I would give it about the Phoenicians for example or I would uh, trade Arabic bread for chocolate uh, <laughs> on the schoolyard and um Things like this, so it was something I was proud of. But that changed, uh, like for for him, it changes when he goes to Lebanon, trying to to look for his father, um, and he sees that you know this country is not paradise on earth, or at least not at least it's only half the truth. So uh, this this changed for me in 2006 when I was about to go to Lebanon. I had my flight ticket already, and then like two days before I was about to go, the the war with Israel erupted, and and it was impossible to go because the 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 airport was being bombed and um, and that was when I I was uh, 21 by that time and I was asking myself uh, why is this happening right now like for the for there must be reasons you know this, uh, so and that's when I st- started when it turned for, t- started turning for me so I did my started doing research I started reading more then I recognized that there are many things going wrong and so this is the autobiographical part and um, yeah as for my childhood as i said it it was never a conflict for me and i guess having having written this book and now we're living in a time where 
there are a lot of nationalist movements that are coming all around the world. There's sort of this regressive turn and kind of this rejection of like globalization and, you know, transcontinental migration or a resentment towards it. I mean, do you relate to your heritage differently now? Like, or do you feel like this sort of a story is more um, pressing now than when you originally wrote it? Yeah, I think uh, it it became a different value now than all that things are happening. Uh, it it's more like it makes me, although I didn't ask for it, it kind of maybe it, it makes me a voice, you know, for uh, being someone that can that has is a privilege of having an audience. You can talk to and get to to like yesterday in the bookstore when I was showing pictures about Lebanon, talking about the Middle East. So uh, giving picture and people a different idea, maybe than uh, or or dealing with cliches maybe uh, just um, and yeah in 2015 when I started writing the book we didn't even have the Pegida movement in Germany I don't know if you heard of that but that's where like the right wing movement became for the first time visible on the streets uh, uh, so um, things like uh, yeah and it was kind of afraid when the book came out that it would be reduced to this is a refugee story so right so because i didn't it's, it's a family story they are refugees but when the book starts they are they they have been in germany for eight years so yes they are refugees and kind of this happened so so yeah, I, I was afraid of that and, and it happened so people were when when i got reviews it was mostly about they chose the refugee part to talk about and um yeah that's kind of sad but it's okay because it's important too that you, you know right and what's interesting to me is that i i never considered myself as a son of refugees although technically i am at least my father he like my mother met my father in lebanon um but they both had to leave lebanon because of the war probably i would have been born in lebanon because they they would have had no reason to leave so uh, they so my father he left like he really ha he lost his home and and uh, got to a whole new um, uh, country but I never saw it this way and really I never saw my family or my father as a former refugee I just we were just a German Lebanese family and in 2015 when the term refugee became like an, everybody was talking about refugees refugees I st that changed for me the perception it was like hmm, wait a minute the same goes for me somehow so. Um, so yeah, I'm not. I think you you shouldn't talk about the book only at, and looking at the refugee thing. But uh, at somehow I'm not. I'm not uh, angry about it or something because it it gives me the possibility to to talk to people about it. So it's it's all right. Yeah. Well, yeah, just having people recognize that this yeah. isn't a new phenomenon. That this is always it's like yeah. the story of humanity sure. that people pick up and leave. And sometimes mm -hmm. there's trauma associated. Sometimes there's not. So. It's, yeah, no, obviously, re having read the book, it's so much more than just, like, this is how this family came to this country. Like, yeah. there's so m there's a lot going on. Um, and one of the things that is really helpful is that, you know, you have this very emotional, fascinating story about this family um, and how they sort of fall apart. But then there's also this very um, detailed history of the Lebanese Civil War and it really it's it's how did you envision balancing that while you were writing it because it is there is like this definite like sh sh a sharing a real sharing of that and you can walk away with you know you have sort of like a choice of what mm. is um what well, i don't it's not a choice it's like what's what's important it, like both of them are important at the mm. same time you know yeah 
I mean, when I started writing, I just wanted to write the, this, the story of this family. But I, I, I recognized very early that it's impossible to write about Lebanon without writing about politics and, and history. So I didn't intend that in the beginning, but I recognized it. It's just not possible. The, everything there is politics. You know, uh, so even uh, if you go to a certain district in the south and you're wearing a yellow jacket, it's politics. <laughs> it's somehow it's politics uh, because you know, because it's the color of Hezbollah, for example. So you uh, so you better not go with the yeah. yellow jacket in a different district, maybe. So it's just an example. So everything is politics there. And um, then it, that took me two years of doing research to understand, you know, the how everything is connected and. While doing research, I got many, many new ideas. Uh, so the the story changed a lot while I did the research, and I thought it would be, yeah, it would be a good idea to connect the family's history to the country's history. So um, to tell both, and I mean, also there was a practical reason because there has just has no, there is no book, and at least it's written in German language about Lebanon uh, that goes so detailed into into the history of. Of, of the country but the Middle East also so it was kind of the first book that did that and yeah as you said I think you can read it and, and uh, uh, like a, a suspenseful story and in the end you can say okay I liked it, it was suspenseful you just put it away that's that's fine but uh, I think you, you can draw many m much more from it and, and uh, then I heard had many people then that that traveled to Lebanon after they read the book, uh, and they sent me pictures with the book uh, uh, in, in in Beirut, and that's that's great because you know that they this probably the, this is a country they had never saw the world, and the book made them want to go there, and they did, and that's that's a uh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's hundred percent a good thing. Um, uh, and then finally, I wanted to ask you, you know, again reading the book, you know, there's in the part you just read, there's Samir has a very, very good memory of things that happened when he was a child. And I'm just saying this relative to my own bad memory of what happened when I was a child. Like just, I cannot remember certain things. But as I was reading this, a lot of stuff came back to me and I was like, oh yeah. Like I remember being afraid of something like this or sort of like the smells or like the, how you were sort of navigating the world. So were there any particular things that helped you sort of reconnect with that sort of childhood experience and convey that in your writing? I think the writing was the way to remember. That's uh, So it, this, it all came up again, you know, suddenly while writing. So I had no difficulties uh, uh, to to remember the smell of, of uh, bread being baked in the kitchen, for example, because it's, it was my, uh, what, what we had in, in, in Germany and uh, things like this or the image in the very beginning of the story with all the satellite dishes pointing into one direction, like the father, he's standing on the roof and trying to get Lebanese TV working. So, And then Samir says, in our street, nobody needed a compass because every satellite dish in our street was pointing 26 degrees east, which is the satellite, where the satellite for Lebanese TV is. And, and that's an image, you know, also from my childhood uh, that I put in the story. I know the street... Uh, and whenever I go to a city in Germany, I, um, and most of the time the the districts where immigrants live are near the train station. So whenever I go from a train station, for example, to my hotel, I look up because uh, uh, and you recognize these, these, these districts where immigrants live sometimes with the satellite dishes pointing into one direction. So um, things like these, I put them in the in the story. But I I'd say I, because maybe the difference is you know. 
we, most of us don't have a reason to remember their childhood. It, it's just something that happens, and 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 we remember maybe seeing the ocean for the first time, things like this. But uh, it's different, of course, with Samir. That's he's basically caught in the in the past, uh, so, and he has a, a a reason to remember the past. He's like every day, and that's maybe why why it makes it. It was reasonable. Reasonable seemed reasonable to me to to make his memories of childhood very vivid because that's him. He is living in the past. I guess we can end it there. Thank you so much. No, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is cut in shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.